Our reading this evening is the entire chapter 14 in the book of Acts. In the small print Bibles, that's page 1,109. And in the large print, it's 1,680. It's Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet! At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form! Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, 
And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is God's word for us this evening. Let's pray, shall we, with that chapter open before us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that those words that have just been read are true. Thank you that they're powerful. Thank you for the fact that your words are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. And they're able to equip us for every good work in Christ. Please be at work doing those things in our hearts and our lives this evening, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, the subject for this evening is division, which on the surface isn't the most cheerful of subjects, but it's a subject that we need to address because the consistent witness of Scripture is clear. When the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, it brings with it division. The gospel divides. As the Lord Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 10, this is as he prepares his disciples for their pioneering mission, as he sets their expectations for what lies ahead. He says to them, do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but the sword. You see, Jesus makes it clear that his life and his ministry will divide people. Of course, he came to bring peace. To die on a cross to bring peace and reconciliation with God. It's been part of the message of Acts so far. We saw it back in Acts chapter 10 and, and Peter's address there to the crowd. Speaking of the good news of peace that comes through Jesus Christ. You see the gospel does bring peace and reconciliation with God. But at the same time like a sword. It divides people. It splits humanity into two. Those who are for Jesus and those who are against Jesus. Or to say it another way, when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed and lived out, it brings both progress and persecution. Have a look back at Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It's on the screen there for you as well. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith we see progress gospel progress and what wonderful progress as well the word of god is on the move disciples are being made even priests are coming to faith in the lord jesus christ and it's one of many growth markers that luke gives us in the book of acts to encourage us that the gospel is taking ground it is making progress in people's lives. But what happens next in verse 8? Onwards. Or Stephen is seized. Dragged outside the city gates. And stoned to death. That is the narrative that then follows. You see when it comes to mission. Both belief and unbelief. Progress and persecution. Go hand in hand. And we see exactly the same thing before us here. In Acts chapter 14. Have a look at verse 1 and 2. Where we. Pick up the story midway through Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual 
into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Progress. Verse 1. Verse 2. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Persecution. And then the summary we get there in verse 4. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. You see the same gospel is preached. But it is met with both progress and belief. And persecution and disbelief. And you know what? This isn't just a story for the book of Acts and the early church. It is a story for today as well. You can stand in this pulpit and you can preach the same gospel and it may be met with a mixed response. Some may believe, others may disbelieve. You could be sat in a coffee shop with your pals and you could be speaking gently about your love of the Lord Jesus and what he's done for you. And it may be met with a mixed response. Some may believe, but others will disbelieve. You can even raise your children in a loving, consistent Christian home and yet be met with a mixed response. Some may believe, but others at that point in time, refuse to believe. This is the reality of gospel work. And Luke wants to make us aware of this reality. When the gospel is proclaimed, it brings both progress, fruit in people's lives, but it also brings persecution. And I guess the question for us is how we respond You see, it's all right when we see the progress, isn't it? When we're we're having conversations and, and we're seeing fruit, we're seeing things happen in people's lives, then it's all good. But what about when the persecution comes? How do we respond then? How did Paul and Barnabas respond here in Acts chapter 14? Well, have a look down at verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. They stayed put and they persevered. They spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. And the rest of this chapter really fleshes out some of the principles we see in that verse. Because tonight we get a lesson in perseverance, what it looks like to stick in there in gospel work. We get a lesson in proclamation, what it looks like to proclaim the gospel, different contexts, different times, same gospel, different people. And we also get a lesson in pastoral care, perseverance, proclamation and pastoral care. And the first thing we're going to think about is perseverance. I wonder what your natural reaction is when things don't work out as planned for you in life. Are you instinctively the sort of person that just pushes on and drives through and perseveres? Or maybe you more instinctively the person that just retreats and withdraws when those difficult moments come in life. William Wilberforce, who you see there on the screen, was instrumental in the abolition of the slave trade. And after his conversion, he prayerfully campaigned for 47 years before the Slavery Abolition Act was passed in 1833. And if you've read much of the life of William Wilberforce, then it was full of obstacles, full of challenges, full of doors shut in his face. 
but he persevered, committed to his cause, and after the Abolition Act was finally passed, he died three days later, his work on earth complete. There is a model in many ways of perseverance. And you see here in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 14, we learn the value of perseverance in gospel work. You see, wherever you turn in the book of Acts, there are huge obstacles to the progress of the gospel, whether that's things internally that need sorting within the church, as we read back in Acts chapter 6, or whether it's the external persecution that we've seen on that video today that we read about here in Acts chapter 14, opposition from without, seeking to squeeze the life out of the Christian church. There will be obstacles to the progress of the gospel. Have a look down at verse 5. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to ill-treat them and stone them. Now that's a remarkable verse, isn't it? Because here are two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, who have historically hated each other. Absolute animosity between them. But here in this moment, they actually come together because of an even greater shared hatred of the gospel. And once again, as we've seen in the book of Acts, again and again, persecution pushes the gospel out. Once again, Paul and Barnabas are on the move, this time to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe, where, as we learn in verse 7, they continued to preach the gospel. They persevered knowing that it would bring both progress and persecution. Yet in contrast, I think we all too often adopt the hedgehog technique, which means when we're faced with the threat of danger or persecution, ever so often we go into self-preservation mode and we curl up into that little ball to defend ourselves. We sometimes get a little bit spiky with those people around us. Rather than being open and honest with who we are and what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Paul and Barnabas here, they don't do the hedgehog. They continued to preach the gospel. And then from verse 8 onwards, Luke homes in on the drama that then follows in Lystra. Let me read it to you from verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. It's hard to read those verses without going back in our mind to Acts chapter 3. When Peter healed the lame beggar at the gates just outside the temple courts in Jerusalem. The parallels are many. Of course, the big difference was back in Acts chapter 3. That was on Jewish soil. Now we see it happen on Gentile soil. Because the focus of mission has changed. Now we've seen the gospel go to the Gentiles. But the parallels are many, right? Here is a lame man who has not walked from birth. But he jumps to his feet, fully restored. Both miracles lead to an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And both miracles caused a significant stir with the watching crowd. Look what happens next in verse 11. Look at the reaction that it provokes. 
When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted out in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. It's a rather strange sequence of events, probably best explained with reference to an old legend that is recorded by the Roman poet Ovid. Legend had it that Zeus and Hermes, who were both Greek gods, had visited Lystra years before as mortals and they'd been ignored by everyone but this old couple who took them into their home. And as a result, all the other houses in the town had been destroyed. And it seems that when Paul and Barnabas arrive in town here and do what they did, the locals wrongly assumed that Zeus and Hermes had come back again. And this time they wanted to give them a decent welcome. The reality is that's just legend. It's just myth. We don't know. We don't know the backstory. We don't know really why the people reacted as they did here to Paul and Barnabas. But what we do know is this. Paul and Barnabas were horrified at this misplaced worship. Look at their reaction in verse 14. It's extreme. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes almost in desperation as they run out into the crowd. What are you doing? What on earth are you doing? Why are you doing this, verse 15? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And so continues Paul's sermon, which we'll return to later. In verse 19, on the back of Paul's proclamation, the hate mob from Antioch catch up with them, and the crowd's misplaced worship quickly turns to anger as Paul is dragged outside the city and stoned. But... Verse 20, the Lord had other plans. Have a look down. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up, went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Now, I doubt Paul jumped to his feet like the lame man in verse 10. But by the grace of God, he did rouse himself before continuing on his journey. Isn't this a story of remarkable perseverance? Here is a guy who's been stoned almost to death within an inch of his life, yet courageously he heads back into the same city he's just been dragged out of to be stoned before the very next day embarking on a 60-mile journey to Derby. Why? To proclaim the same gospel that got him stoned in Lystra. As one commentator said, I once saw the track of a bleeding hare across the snow. So it was with Paul and the track that he left across Europe. There's the little map of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And you see the little route that he took there in blue. But it might as well be marked in blood red. Because Paul put his life on the line every single step of the way in order to proclaim the gospel to people who desperately needed to hear it. 
expelled from Pisidian Antioch at the end of Acts chapter 13, chased out of Iconium, Acts chapter 14, stoned almost to death here in Lystra, yet they persevered. Relentless is the word, isn't it? Relentless in their desire to proclaim the gospel and to pastor God's people. And this, of course, was only the beginning of Paul's missionary endeavors. Missionary journeys two and three are still to come. It's both inspiring and humbling, isn't it, at the same time? Now, of course, our context may be very different today. Our skill sets may be different from Paul, who was set apart for this specific work at this specific time. But the question remains, how will we respond to that division and to that mixed response that we will get to the gospel? Think about those friends and family now that you pray for, that you love very much. However many years it has been, however long you, by the grace of God, have pursued them and prayed for them and faithfully witnessed to them, will you continue? However long it takes, will you persevere in the proclamation of the gospel, knowing that God, in his goodness in due course, does bring fruit and he does bring progress in people's lives? Firstly, there is a wonderful lesson in here in terms of our perseverance in gospel work. But secondly, we see a lesson in proclamation. One of the central themes of the book of Acts so far has been that of proclamation. Back in Acts chapter 2, if you remember, God gave his spirit to his apostles and subsequently the wider church in order that God's people may proclaim God's word to all the world. And that has been the heart of the book of Acts, the empowerment of the spirit that God's people may take the gospel out. And throughout the book of Acts, we get all these little snapshots then as people go out and do the business, different contexts, different walks of life. And we get these little snapshots of what it looks like to proclaim the gospel. And Luke gives us two of those snapshots this evening in Acts chapter 14. And the first one is there in verse 3, back in Iconium. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Did you notice what our message is about? It is a message of his Grace. What a wonderful summary that is, isn't it? In verse 3 of the gospel message. It's what's absolutely unique to the Christian faith. Sheer, undeserved, unmerited kindness and favor of God. Grace. You see, the message we've been given is actually pretty simple. Stop trying to earn it, says the gospel. Stop trying to earn your salvation. It's not about trying, it's about trusting. It's not about religion and rules and rituals and regulations. It is about a relationship with the living God that we can have through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's already done for us. It is a message of grace. I wonder do people see and hear grace in us. They see grace pouring out of every single part of our body. Permeating every pore of our body. Do they hear grace on our lips? Do they see it? Visibly? 
And do they hear it audibly? Oh, to be a people of grace, because that's what the gospel is all about. But there's a second snapshot we get in this chapter as well. And it's in verse 15 to 17. Words that Paul spoke in Lystra in response to being wrongly worshipped as Zeus and Hermes. Have a look at verse 15. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It's an important insight for us because it's the first recorded preach that we have to pagans. And for that reason, Paul doesn't start with the scriptures. Why? Because they didn't know the scriptures. These guys had zero understanding of the scriptures, yet his message is consistent. Do you see it there? Repent. Turn from these worthless things, says Paul. Turn. Repent. Turn away from a life lived without God. Turn away from these worthless idols back to the one true living God. It was Peter's message in the early chapters and Paul consistently preaches the same message in the latter chapters of Acts. In this little book here, the words out, which is very helpful read in terms of thinking of getting the gospel out there. The authors use this little phrase on the screen called worship spotters. And it's a really helpful phrase because a big part of our evangelism is spotting the false gods that other people are worshipping. The things that people are living for. The things that people are building their lives upon. The things that promise so much but deliver so little. Things that Paul describes here as worthless in verse 15. You see, it's part of our job to help people see that these things they pursue in life are worthless and empty. They don't save. They don't satisfy We expose the futility of these false gods and in so doing turn them back to the one true living God who does save and who does satisfy. You see, if you're not a Christian here tonight, indeed the the question remains if you are, what are you living for? What are you living for? Because whatever it is, popularity, money, success, image, career, or anything else that this particular culture idolizes, if it's not Jesus Christ, it will not save you for heaven. And it will not satisfy you, not even in this life, let alone in eternity. There is only one who saves and satisfies, and it is the one true living God. And Paul says, turn around from those false things. And go to the one who does just that. And if you are a Christian here this evening, as you go about your business this week, maybe chatting with friends over a coffee break at work, leaning over the fence to talk to your neighbour, walking down the street, around the family meal table, will you make it your business to be a worship spotter? To see what it is, to get to get into people's lives, to ask them questions, to really see what it is that's driving them. What are they pursuing? What are they living for? And help them see that those things will not save and will not satisfy. 
And as you do, bring them face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in him, we find one who does save and who does satisfy and who does secure us for all eternity. We get a lesson this evening in perseverance. We get a lesson in proclamation. And finally, we get a lesson in pastoral care. Have a look down at verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. What's often missed with Paul when we focus on his big missionary zeal is his equally big pastoral heart. Because here in the Apostle Paul, we see someone who's not just bothered about making converts, but disciples. Because he retraces his steps through those very towns where churches have been established. The hostile towns of Lystra and Iconium on the way back to Antioch. Why? Verse 22. To strengthen the disciples and encourage them to remain true in their faith. To see these believers not just hang on, but mature in Christ. To flourish in Christ. To enjoy following Christ in all of life. And Paul and Barnabas once again put their own well-being to one side for the sake of this time, these new believers. And so I ask us all the question, I wonder how far we are willing to go for each other. To really look after each other's hearts and well-being. What are we willing to give up? To sacrifice to lay to one side in order to really care for each other's hearts and growth in godliness. And there's two aspects that I think that stand out in these verses as we consider pastoral care. And the first one's there in verse 22. It's preparing people for suffering. I don't know whether you've ever gone into anything unprepared. An exam, maybe. Interview. A marathon I went into unprepared. That's a long story that I won't tell you about now. But I think we all know what it feels like when you go into something unprepared. Usually it ends pretty badly for you, right? Well, part of our pastoral care of each other, part of preparing disciples to remain true in their faith is to set their expectations so there's no surprises, so they know what life is like following Christ. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas do in verse 22. This is how their faith is strengthened partly. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, says Paul. Or as the Lord Jesus would say, if anyone would come after me, he must, same word, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, if we preach a gospel that does not include counting the cost, then we are ultimately setting people up to fail. If people trust Jesus thinking the Christian life is an easy life, then do you know what? When the hardships of life come, when things get really tough, one of two things will happen. Either people do the hedgehog, self-preservation, turn into a little ball, go inward looking and protect themselves rather than being open to the world. Or 
even more sadly, they turn away from Christ altogether. Because they were unprepared for a life that involves denying self and carrying your cross. You see, if people don't understand verse 22, then we're not caring for people pastorally. We need to help them understand what to expect in the Christian life, as well as then walking through that life with them. As the great reformer Martin Luther once said, the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. It is cross, then crown. It's pain, then paradise. It's hardship, then heaven. That is the pattern of the Christian life. And we need to be ready for that. And then secondly, we see that part of Paul's pastoral care for these people is in the appointing of elders. Verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now we could speak about church governance here and talk about and build the case for the plurality of elders and maybe even independency. But the main point I want to make is a pastoral one. Paul and Barnabas put their life on the line by retracing their steps through hostile territory when they could quite easily have gone another way. They did not need to go back this way. Why did they go back this way? To make sure these new believers who had come to faith, new life in Christ, were looked after and led in a way that would help them flourish in Christ. You see, there's huge challenges for leadership in church everywhere. And indeed, there are here. As the numbers grow in this church, the numbers of people here are growing. What does pastoral care then really look like? Where do home groups fit? What does it look like to care for the elderly? What about those people that can't make it here on a Sunday regularly? What about that family? They came, they came eight times in a row back at the end of last year. I haven't seen them for two months. Where are they? Are they okay? Do we even know? Do we care? What does it really look like to be pastorally concerned for each other? To make sure we are walking well with the Lord through all the different challenges of life. You see, one of the big things for me as I work through Acts chapter 14 is the challenge that our evangelistic zeal must be matched by a pastoral concern. We want our evangelistic temperature up here. We want it to be hot. We want to see lost people know Christ, right? But we want to see our evangelistic zeal married with a genuine pastoral care and concern for others, whatever the cost to self. And we are called to persevere in both. Well, in summary, the gospel divides. It's plain to see. The life and ministry of Jesus splits humanity. It brings both progress and fruit and life. And it brings persecution. The question we're left with is, how will we respond today in the face of these things? Will we do the hedgehog? Self-preservation mode, protect me, look after me? Or will we continue to be open with who we are and with the full 
truth of the gospel? Will we persevere in both proclamation and pastoral care? When you take a moment just to consider what the Lord has said and really feel maybe the personal challenge to yourself and take a minute to to pray that into your own heart and life and then we'll sing again shortly. We're going to stand in a moment to sing our final hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. If we're going to be a people who persevere in proclamation and pastoral care, then we need to remember the one who we're serving, King Jesus, and the victory is his. So why don't we stand together and sing, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Good, do take a seat and we'll pray as we close our time together. Just a few words from the end of Acts chapter 14. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Father in heaven, we try and imagine what that moment was like when Paul and Barnabas returned from that missionary journey and when they were met and embraced by fellow believers back in Antioch and as they sat down and reminisced and spoke of the trials and the challenges and the joys and the new life that they had seen. Oh Lord, we long to come back here week after week and to share stories of your wonderful grace at work in people's lives. And continue to support each other through all of life's challenges as together we walk arm in arm until that day when we will see the Lord Jesus face to face. So be with us, I pray. Help us to be a people who persevere, who persevere both in our proclamation of the gospel and who persevere in our pastoral care of each other. And we pray all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.